0: Section seventeen of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This Librivox recording is in the public domain. The Infant God Part two. There are almost as many points of view from which we may contemplate the attributes of God as there are individual souls in the church. Yet there is a similarity of method even amongst these differences. Some fix their attentions and affections on the attributes which assert all possible positive perfection, beauty and goodness of the Most High. And it is plain that the height of this devotion will depend very much upon the height of our own conceptions, although the practice of it will infallibly elevate and ennoble those conceptions in the end. Others, on the contrary, magnify God by their negations. In other words, they fix their loving and admiring look on those attributes, which deny of him all such imperfection, limitation, partial possession, and mixed sovereignty, as seem to us essential to everything else in the world but God. On the whole, there is more truth to be attained, a nearer approach to a worthy idea of God, by this negative method than by the positive, for it leaves us what the positive runs the risk of not leaving us, that vague and indefinite magnificence which must cling to our idea of God when we have done our utmost to comprehend Him. There are others, again, who use these negations as if they were rather affirmations, that is, as affirming of God an excellence, not in the limited degree or imperfect kind in which possible creatures may possess it, but in a supereminent, supersubstantial, superessential manner, to use their own style of speaking but this method will be found in reality to be nothing more than a union of the other two. At one time, devotion will fix itself on God, as he is visible in his works. Some souls will remain all their lives long chiefly conversant with those attributes which shine forth most manifestly in the mysteries of creation and redemption, and other souls will remain for weeks, months, or even years in this contemplation. There are some again whose love allures them rather to lose themselves in the glad thoughts of that inward life which God is leading, and ever has been leading, in his own blessed and sufficient self. To some the divine attributes lie always in the light of the most holy trinity, and they can read God best by the splendour cast upon him by the eternal generation of the Son or the unbeginning procession of the spirit. To others again the treasures of the Godhead are unlocked by a series of shocks, or sweet surprises, as is the case when we allow the mystery of the Incarnation to unfold for us the hidden recesses of the Godhead. Thus the littleness of the babe of Bethlehem, touched in our hearts by the faith in his divinity, sends us, by a kind of impulse, far into the understanding of his infinity. The shame of Calvary lets us deeper down into his essential glory, Than we should else have had the momentum to penetrate, for the abysses of God are waters in which it is hard for nature to sink. Of itself it only floats like driftwood on the surface. The thirst and fatigue of Jesus at the well of Jacob throw a light around him as creator which has a startling clearness and compels an instantaneous worship of speechless tears. This is the characteristic of devotion to the divine perfections through the incarnation, that it impels us by these shocks, "'deeper into the hiding places of the immense majesty "'than we should otherwise have been able to go. "'It is then of this last sort of devotion to the attributes of God "'that we shall have chiefly to speak in this chapter. "'We must, however, bear in mind "'that the more excellent our devotion to these attributes becomes, "'also the more vague, indefinite, obscure and shadowy "'becomes our view of God's sublimity. "'It is not with this devotion as with some others. "'Here we always purchase clearness "'at the expense of height and depth and breadth.' We contract the dimensions of God and diminish Him. Nay, not seldom we must also reverse His image in order to see Him clearly. Hence, therefore, this devotion, to become a devotion of predilection, implies in the soul abundant gifts of faith and of tranquility, two graces so congenial that they seldom lie far apart. We must have a great gift of faith, because then we feel the less painfully poor nature's hungry gnawings to see and to understand. We must also possess tranquillity of spirit, dove-like brooding souls, else the vast, outspread magnificence will only wink before us like lightning, showing nothing when it lightens, but only dazzling us with its after-darknesses. We shall discern nothing in it, we shall never accustom ourselves to it as a light to read by. We shall see it double or divided or restless or coloured by straining at it unquietly. A soul truly versed in this devotion to the divine perfections is one who has learned to see in divine darkness, in a holy night, better than in terrestrial day, and to whom the indefinite has become more defined than the definite. Distance is necessary to vision. A man whose spiritual life is in this glorious devotion is one who, like many men physically, sees things far off better than things which are near and who has removed God further off from him by the magnificence of his conceptions of him, rather than brought him nearer by the familiarity of his contemplation, and who now sees him better in the immensity of that distance and in the confusion of that light in which, to unpractised eyes, he is simply invisible altogether. He who looks with quiet patience into any unoccupied spot of blue in the midnight heavens will soon people it for himself with stars. So are they who look for God. Now, it is a characteristic of devotion to the divine perfections through the Incarnation that the Incarnation supplies us with a number of legitimate and not delusive images, and even with measures of distance which, as it were, bring the infinite within our compass by breaking it up into many infinities. Yet it is at the same time a characteristic of such a devotion that these images and measures of distance, being themselves divine things, do not in any way impair that vagueness, indefiniteness and obscurity, which are absolutely essential to true ideas about God. This is another of its recommendations. We have seen already how, by its shocks and surprises, it enables us to penetrate further into each of the divine attributes than we should otherwise have done. We now see also that it brings this sublime devotion to God's perfections within the reach of many more souls than could otherwise have practiced it, inasmuch as they could not have existed without the nutriment of images or without the resting places of those measures of distance which the union of our Lord's human nature with his divine supplies to us in every mystery, and back to which we can always retreat without, in reality, losing any ground we may have gained. The entire world of devotion to the Incarnation has perhaps never yet been explored. Almost every age of the Church develops some new treasures in it, discovers gold in unsuspected places, and even widens the horizon so as to enlarge the view. Perhaps the least of divine mysteries must of necessity be unfathomable, simply because it is divine. This much, at any rate, may be said, that no one has gained even a comparative perfection in his devotion to the Incarnation, who has not applied it to the purposes of discovery in God, of observations on his attributes, of anticipations of that blissful vision in which eternal life consists. But, while out of the seven methods of devotion to the divine attributes enumerated above, we couple the last with the incarnation in a special manner, we must not suppose that the other six are in reality independent of that life-giving and God-revealing mystery, or can be detached from it. All that can be said is that it is less prominent in them. Let us then begin by occupying ourselves with a method of using all these six methods, either separately or collectively, which will be found exceedingly congenial to the mystery of the Incarnation, and, if original in form, guilty, we may hope, of no other originality. It is this, God is especially life. The life of God is his blessedness. It is himself. To have life in himself is the unshared prerogative of God. The Son drew it eternally from the Father's fountain. The Holy Ghost rejoiced in the eternal possession of it from the one fountain of the Father and the Son. Not so much as a shadow of this excellence rests upon any created thing or person. It is a height in God too high to cast any shade over creation which lies in its littleness close under his feet. From the more or less unconscious feeling of this characteristic of life in God's incommunicable grandeur, it has come to pass that it is not an uncommon form of devotion to the Incarnation to adopt, that of throwing itself upon the various lives which our Lord is supposed to have lived. When we cast the mysteries of the Incarnation together into great groups and masses, we make his life threefold, joyful, suffering, and glorious. The most complete form is that which distinguishes eight lives in him, His unborn life, infant life, hidden life, public life, suffering life, risen life, ascended life, and sacramental life. Into these moulds, devotion to the Incarnation pours itself and comes out in forms and shapes of the most surpassing beauty. Some of us get so used to these life moulds that we transfer them to our devotion to the attributes of God, and besides their facility from habit, we find many unexpected conveniences and congruities in them of exceeding value whilst they not only help to keep the Incarnation continually before us, but lead us to find our actual devotion to the divine perfections in the depths of the Incarnation, thus landing us, though starting from different points, at the seventh method of devotion to the divine attributes of which we have already spoken. It is difficult to make this clear to anyone who has not practiced it, while to one who has, it has already made itself so plain that it does not need an explanation. There are two peculiar advantages of this method of devotion to the perfections of God. The first is that it does not confine us in any single contemplation to the use of only one of the seven methods enumerated above. We can use them all separately or collectively. We may pass from one to the other with the rapidity of thought, playing upon them as musicians play upon the keys, or we may glance at them in their unity and completeness. We may weave, unweave, interweave our thoughts of them as we please, at once gaining variety for our contemplation without any damage to its simplicity, and also emancipating ourselves from the trammels of too much formality and legislation, which are less applicable to this devotion than to any other, and which most men have already outlived when they have reached this stage in the cycle of prayer, outlived at least as far as the amount of it is concerned which once was needful, and so far as the minute subjection to it is concerned, which, at the outset of prayer, is often the best part of the prayer itself, as well as of the systematic legislation. The other advantage is that its forms singularly fall in with and minister to correct theology, in a manner which turns out to be of no slight consequence as we advance in devotion to the divine attributes. We look at God as living so many different lives, though there is neither time, space, succession or mutation in him, When we are thinking of one of his lives, or to describe the process more accurately, gazing at it, we put aside altogether the other countless lives which he is at that eternally present moment, contemporaneously living. It is not that we forget them, for they are always lying half-consciously in the background and influencing us by keeping us indefinite, which is what we require. But we purposely put them aside and look at that life of God as if it was his whole life, that is, as if it were God himself." Thus by degrees we get well into ourselves as our standing idea of God, that he is what he is, that he is the infinite things which he is, that his perfections are not perfections of his but are himself. To say of God that he has is to be thinking of creation and outward things. To say of God that he is is to be thinking of himself. Thus the simplicity of God comes to be the foundation of all our devotions to his attributes from the beginning and not merely the ultimate idea reached, and often uneasily as well as imperfectly reached, after many trials and failures, imperfectly, that is, even with reference to our capacities for reaching so sovereign an idea. When we are contemplating our blessed Lord's public life, we do not advert to his infant life. The one idea would interfere with the other unless we were purposely passing from one to the other in order to bring out contrasts or similitudes." When we are with him on Calvary, we know that Easter lies in front of us ready to dawn, but we shut ourselves up purposely, lest some streak of that dawn should surprise us, and we gaze upon our Lord in his depths of agony, as if they were his whole mission, as if he had always been there and always would be there, as if all his mysteries were states and permanences, which in a very high sense they are. Our prayer would be speculation or controversy rather than meditation if we dealt otherwise with it so do we deal with these lives of God which we put before ourselves as the objects of our contemplation. Moreover, that which lies at the bottom of all the eight lives of Jesus, not only giving them their unity but also the vitality, significance and tenderness by which they elicit and exercise our devotion, is our faith in his divinity, which is always working indistinctly in the mysteries of the Incarnation, even when we perceive it least, or are even willfully prescinding from it. His divinity, the divinity of the word, occupies the same position with regard to all these eight various lives which the simplicity of the divine nature occupies with regard to the perhaps eighteen lives in which our prayer may be used to look at God. So that, from the point of view of this peculiar method, here advocated, the analogies between the devotion to the divine attributes and the devotion to the incarnation are most singular and most important. Finally, we connect these lives of God with the Incarnation in a most direct and obvious manner, by which also we gain for all the first six methods of devotion to the attributes, what seemed at first sight the peculiar privilege of the seventh, namely those sweet shocks of surprise which carry us so deeply into God. In other words, we reduce our first six methods into our seventh, without deducting from any one of them that which is most special and characteristic about ourselves. For when we have contemplated these lives of God, or any number of them, we fall back in a sort of repose of spirit upon the babe in his manger, or the carpenter boy at Nazareth, or the man upon the cross, and behold him at that moment awfully and worshipfully living all those lives in the fleshly recesses of a sacred human heart, or in another way the sacred human heart living them in God. When a finite mind occupies itself upon an object which is vast and simply infinite, As God is, its observations will almost present the appearance of its having itself created the object in the contemplation of which it has been engaged. The variety of men's views of God will equal the variety of minds which takes views of Him at all. We seem to make our own God because we see but a part of Him. The character of our own mind imprints itself so strongly on our conceptions of Him that it really looks as if we had but projected Him from our own thoughts, and then called Him God. Everything is true of God which may be honorably said of him. Apparent contradictories will be found true of one who is infinite. But, in truth, all this appearance of unreality thrown over our conceptions of God is but the tribute of our ignorance and blindness to his unimaginable infinity. Thus the life of God will divide itself differently to different minds. Things in God which appear to one mind to lie apart from each other to another mind will seem identical. All that is absolutely necessary is that all divisions, whatever they may be, should be understood to be faulty divisions. If they were not acknowledgedly such, they would lead to falsehood and not to truth. They must all contain each other, repeat each other, and be at once complete and incomplete, each of them in itself. We must be aware that this is the case throughout, just as much as we must be aware of our Lord's divinity while we are musing on the mysteries of his humanity. God stands so full in his own light that when we look at him in front, he is invisible. We must throw his own light upon himself by changing our position, first here and then there. He does not move. He is in omnipresent repose forever, but we catch glimpses of him by the aid of our own mutabilities. Not one of these lights is true, not one of them false. For practical purposes, they are all true. They only become false when they claim to be an adequate illumination of God. Some of these lights we gain by looking at God as an external immensity, which is the loosest and least accurate view of him there is, yet the one commonest to most minds. Others, and of deeper import, we obtain by looking at God as enclosing us, as a tree sometimes encloses a stone, as if we were within God, as we might be inside a temple or inside the ocean, yet uncommingled with it. Then we do not so much look at him as an external immensity we are in contact with him we only stand straight because we are built up in him walled up on all sides against our own tendency to struggle and melt back into our original nothingness this is more nearly our true position than the other we are all built up in god and can only act towards each other through him and in him this is a terrifying view of life to those who do not love Pantheists break down the partitions and make us dissolve into the divine life so that we ourselves are part of God, and if a part of Him, then God being God, in some sense the whole of Him. This is but the poetic form of atheism. But our best and deepest lights, the fewest in number because the observations are so hard to take, are gained from our looking at God as inside ourselves, with our littleness compassing His infinity, so that we are all likenesses of Mary during the nine months she carried Jesus in her bosom. These lights are very rare, but they are so much nearer the truth that they are worth almost any number of the rest. Venturing then to look at God's eternity, as we look at our Lord's three and thirty years, it seems as if we might view him leading eighteen different lives, different lives which are yet but one adorable life that has neither past nor future but an eternal present. Neither movement nor inequality, but an everlasting, equable tranquillity. Much worship comes out of few thoughts where God is concerned. His magnificence in our conceptions is not in the richness of detail, but in the vastness of solitary grandeurs set in immense spaces, like the constellations of the southern seas. Thus we may adore his secret life, out of sight of all his creatures, hidden from the first, hidden now, forever hidden. We may worship his secret life as it is disclosed to those who see the vision in heaven, the object of our own yearnings and perpetual patient discontent with self. We may worship, it is the one business of our lives, his secret life as far as it is shown to faith. We may contemplate with perplexed wonder the life of God as it is affected both by the existence of his creatures and their worship. He has a life in the material world, a life in the moral world, a life in the intellectual world, a life in the spiritual world of grace, a life in the world of glory. God has also a public life in external government, which is his life as king. He has a life in punishing, for his vindictive justice is one of his incessant grandeurs. He has a life in rewarding, in which he manifests his inner treasures by the copious outpouring of them upon his creatures. He has a different life in each of his different creations. He has a life in the fortunes of humanity, considering our whole race as one, and he has another life in each individual soul of man. He has a life which is imitable, and which is disclosed to us in order to be imitated, and a life which is visible but perplexing to our finite views, and so not imitable, and finally an unimaginable life. These are the lives of God, with which our prayer may reverently and fruitfully employ itself. We know that he has many more lives than these, and that many more will strike other minds. We know that he is living all these lives at once, and that he cannot live any of them separately. We know that he is complete in each one of them, and self-sufficient and infinitely adorable. We know that of him, in each of these lives, we may predicate all conceivable positive perfection, and deny of him all conceivable possible infirmity. We know also that the beautiful transitory darkness which he sometimes deigns to throw over our breathless souls is a better and a nearer thing to him than all these lights of ours, better than words, for it is simply indescribable, nearer than thought, for thought dies in worship then. But when he withholds that gift, which we must not ask, when he does not come down himself and proclaim silence in our souls and press us to him in the dark, then is it by these other or like modes of conceiving of our ever-blessed Maker and Father, that He Himself mercifully invites, nay, even lovingly provokes, the daring littleness of our prayer to compete with His magnificence. There are three imaginary epochs in all the lives of God, according to the view which the creatures of any of His creations take of Him. There is the eternity before creation at all. There is the time which is the duration of our own particular creation. There is the subsequent eternity, which, whether occupied with other creations or not, is only occupied with us as being our home attained and our beatitude fulfilled. From our point of view, all these epochs have strongly marked characteristics of their own. The eternity before creation is distinguished by the blissful self-companioned solitude of the Most Holy Trinity. The act of creation and its prolonged continuation in the preservation of creatures, appears to confer upon God attributes which he could not have had except as creator, or at least to bring into action beautiful depths of his nature, which, so in our ignorance it seems to us, could have had no functions in his own inward life of three persons. The eternity after the doom, whether occupied with fresh creations or not, to us represents God as joyously reposing upon the immense family of glorified creatures whom he has introduced into his own home. Now, some of the lives of God which we contemplate in our prayer belong to one or other of these epochs, while others belong to two of them at once, and others abide unchanged during all the three. But we take no account of this in our contemplations. It is essential to us that each life of God should seem his whole life while we are gazing upon it. We are not musing on the history of God, but on God. We must have him therefore before us as the eternally and immutably present God. There are other times when we may venture to look at God's eternity as if it were a successive biography, and deep thoughts of adoration will flow in upon us as we so regard it. But it does not belong to that peculiar method of devotion to the divine attributes with which we are now concerned. When we contemplate the secret life of God which is out of sight, space which to our conceptions at least is practically boundless, for what will that thing be like which confines upon us, yet lies outside its boundary, Space, although populous with possible creations, dwindles to a point, becomes too insignificant to be taken into account, and does not affect the life of God. His own life as God is something vaster than his occupation as creator, and it is upon that invisible life that we fix our eyes and worship. There is a joy so limitless that it fills the infinite nature of the three divine persons, which in no way flows from creatures, nor is it in any degree influenced by them. In this indescribable, self-sufficing beatitude resides this secret life of God, which He is living at each point of space, in each point of time, and far away beyond all space, and unbeginningly and unendingly before and after all time. We gaze upon it and see nothing and are satisfied. The very shapeless thought of it is happiness to our love. We have no figures to express it by, no analogies by which we can bring it home to ourselves, no comparisons, the use of which would not seem to us an irreverent license of the imagination. We know that such an adorable life exists, and the mere knowledge bathes our souls in joy. We are out upon it ourselves, and it is a deep sea without features, landmarks, or constellations. There is no compass to point, to vary, or to dip, for it is itself, that deep, horizonless, glad ocean, It is itself the ever-present home of the Eternal. Then again the boundless waters of that sea suddenly of themselves change the scene. They come nigh to a lovely coast, studded beautifully with the spirits of angels and the souls of men, who gaze in silent or vocal rapture upon that many-featured deep, which rolls without resonance before them. One while it is a halcyon calm, Such a calm as creatures do not know, and its peacefulness tingles through their spirits. There is a brooding beauty over the waves, which would destroy life by the vehement ecstasy which it produces. Were not the immortality of the fortunate elect, immensely fortified by God himself? Then again come storms out of such exceeding grandeur as to turn their whole capacious lives of glory into pure music, loud and swelling, and glorious, sounding along the eternal shore. There are mornings there, dawning upon new sights seen far off in God, like flashing things coming into view from inexhaustible eternities, which lie far onward still, and out of which fresh splendours may be travelling towards the blessed perpetually. There are noons also, hushed deep, entrancing, which appear to make visible or sensible or intelligible the stationariness of eternity. Then come evenings of such restful loveliness that the spirit is drowned in the contentedness of their uncreated beauty and loses itself in a trance of unutterable satisfaction on the bosom of God. It is these evenings which make eternity a home. There is no night there, but there is the gorgeous spirit of nocturnal beauty, at once brightly, softly, starily shading the depths of the incomprehensible and shading them by enabling the eye to see far down into their glancing and mysterious caverns. But there is no succession of these visions. All are at once. One does not paint out the other. The storms do not break up the calms, nor the calms assuage the storms. It is dawn and noon and evening light always on that exulting sea. It is the life of God, disclosed in abiding vision to the loyal and the pure. There is again the secret life of God as it is shown to faith. It is no mere boundless presence to which we strain our imaginations, no mere exquisitely piercing essence which we vainly endeavour by the eloquent exaggerations of language to express. God bids faith unveil no little of his hidden life, even to us distracted wanderers, amidst the excessive occupations and uncongenial weariness of life." One while as the exalting trinity of persons, another while as the infinitely blissful unity of essence, God manifests himself to us with immutable variety. Ever before us we behold the unbegotten Father, out of whose pacific fountains all Godhead is rapturously flowing, evermore magnifying and adorning his own primacy by the co-equality of the Spirit and the Son evermore seated on his awful throne, with a peace and a stability which it almost oppresses, created spirit to contemplate, lone yet not alone in a peculiar grandeur which is the more solitary because it is equally and rightfully shared with his word and with his love, a person to whose supremacy there is no corresponding subordination, hidden in the blaze of the incomprehensible love wherewith the spirit and the sun environ him, the home of the divinity where no mission reaches, the person furthest in name from creatures, yet with the most creature-like relations of the three, a father in whom all sweet fatherhoods have been eternally combined, out of whom come the indulgence of all justice and the omnipotence of all forbearance, unspeakably compassionate yet unspeakably immutable, infinitely tender yet infinitely imperturbable, a person so inaccessible and yet so incredibly familiar that it is hard to think of him without tears of love. Ever before us we behold the eternally begotten Son, in his unbeginning beginnings, in his never ending ends, issuing forth from the Father in blinding abysses of light, glowing out from the ineffably refulgent sanctuaries of uncreated life, always being begotten, always the very actual, instantaneous, co equal, co eternal image of the mighty Father, and whose generation is a glory and a loveliness enough of its own self to fascinate numberless creations with its beauty and its splendor, and to overwhelm them in an intolerable excess of unending jubilation. Ever before us we behold the eternally preceding Spirit, and in His procession at once beginning and yet being perfect for evermore, flashing before us like a sea of light from out the blazing ocean of the Father and the Son in an unspeakable orderly tumult of uncreated gladness, "'Jubilant, exceedingly, with speechless cries and silent music, and all the unvocal clangour of unutterable triumph, whose beauty is as that of fire, with banners, flying, and golden chariots mutely rolling along its everlasting march, as if the vast godhead were blissfully unfolding itself in its own unimaginable sunshine.' Yet ever before us also we behold, likest of all things, to the vision of the blessed, the fixed, immutable, simple, self-sufficient, featureless unity of essence, upon whose formless lineaments is written unchangeable, unbeginning, unfinishing repose. One point of indefinite whiteness, a splendour which stirs not and does not flash, far withdrawn yet everywhere, all embracing yet separate as a sanctuary, whose adorable monotony, seen at one glance yet brooking, unmoved, and uncintillating the searching gaze of all creations, is of its own soul self-light, and nourishment, and rest, and jubilee, and immortality to the believing soul. End of section 17